1: I'm Eleanor Wachtel, and this is Writers in Company from the Archives. Today, Tim O'Brien. Described as the best American writer of his generation, he drew on his own experiences as a young soldier in the Vietnam War in his classic 1990 book, The Things They Carried. Now he has a new novel. At the beginning of a short story called The Things They Carried, Tim O'Brien lists all the deadly and mundane items that were carried by American GIs in Vietnam. Can openers, wristwatches, mosquito repellent, chewing gum, salt tablets, packets of Kool-Aid, matches, sewing kits, along with M-16 assault rifles, M-60 machine guns, and M-79 grenade launchers. But the story is really about the other things the soldiers carry. Quote, grief, terror, love, longing, shameful memories, and the common secret of cowardice. Though with Tim O'Brien, cowardice is not what you think. It's not simply being afraid to die. It's being afraid not to do what's expected of you. As he tells it, these men carried the soldiers' greatest fear, which was the fear of blushing. Men killed and died because they were embarrassed not to. O'Brien insists he went to Vietnam to stay loved. He considered coming to Canada to avoid the draft. But as he writes in another story, all those eyes on me, I couldn't risk the embarrassment. I couldn't endure the mockery or the disgrace or the patriotic ridicule. I was a coward. I went to the war. When he was 22 and newly graduated, summa cum laude, Tim O'Brien was drafted into the U.S. Army and served in Vietnam. He was there for a year, in 1969. He became a sergeant and received the Purple Heart. Before going to Vietnam, O'Brien thought he'd be an academic or go into politics. He was on his way to graduate school at Harvard on a full scholarship. When he came back, he started at Harvard, but dropped out to write books. His first was called, If I Die in a Combat Zone, another, Going After Cacciato, also inspired by Vietnam, won the National Book Award. Although O'Brien was obsessed with the Vietnam War, I wouldn't call his books war books. He writes with painful and poignant honesty about trying to understand such questions as cowardice and courage, memory and forgetting, love and war. Vietnam is a dream or nightmare zone. As he wrote in his 1994 novel, In the Lake of the Woods, the jungles stood dark and unyielding. The corpses gaped. The war itself was a mystery. Nobody knew what it was about or why they were there. Ultimately, O'Brien embraces mystery or unknowability. Truth is always ambiguous or elusive. You have to tell the truth at any cost, he says, even if you have to lie. To me, that's quintessential Tim O'Brien. In the Lake of the Woods is full of ambiguity and unanswered questions. But O'Brien takes on a lot. The story's central character is John Wade, who fought in Vietnam in the late 1960s. He was present at the My Lai Massacre in 1968, when as many as 500 villagers, women, infants, teenagers, and old men, non-combatants, were slaughtered. In the novel, Wade covers his tracks, returns to the United States, marries his girlfriend, and 20 years later, runs for political office. In the course of the book, his past overtakes him. In 1994, Tim O'Brien went back to Vietnam after 25 years and revisited Me Lai with his girlfriend. He wrote about the experience and the end of that relationship in a cover story for the New York Times magazine, a piece called The Vietnam in Me. I talked to Tim O'Brien when he was in Toronto in late 1994. Just a warning, part of this discussion deals with suicide. You walk a kind of tightrope between fact and fiction, so I wanted to ask you if if the recent cover story that you wrote for the New York Times magazine is actually about you.
0: It is about me, yeah. I returned to Vietnam in February, and everything in the piece is true.
1: Can you tell me about that trip? I mean, you, you, you had been to, to My Lai in 1969, a year after the massacre. Mm-hmm. And, what was what was it like back then?
0: Well, in 1969, when I was a foot soldier over in Vietnam, we knew nothing about the massacre. It was our area of operations, and on a daily basis, we'd you know walk through the the village of My Lai for and adjacent villages in an area we called Pinkville. It was a an extremely hostile place, much more so than any other part of Vietnam that we worked in. But we had no re- no knowledge of why. You know, we were hated so much, and then about I guess nine months into my tour, the story of the massacre broke in the newspapers and so on, and suddenly we realized, you know, why these people despised us so much, and um, it all sudden you know, kind of sudden clarity. This horrid massacre that had occurred a year before I I got there, and. Um, you know, we had lost a lot of men in that area. It was a heavily mined area, lots of snipers and landmines, and we felt the same sorts of frustrations and anger that, uh, that Charlie Company had felt. We didn't, though, cross that, that line between murder and, and rage. We managed to comport ourselves with, you know, some sort of you know, virtue.
1: To contain the rage.
0: To contain the rage and to contain the frustration and uh, thank god we didn't cross that line
1: but you you said that you you could understand why they did not that it was excusable or for your, for even forgivable but you you could understand right. that there's line a, could get crossed
0: sure there's a big difference between explanation and justification you know one can explain evil and its sources and so on and in in the lake of the woods i try to do a little of that to talk about the frustrations of combat in vietnam Um, how difficult it was to find the enemy, how difficult it was to separate friend from foe. Um, The frustrations of of fighting, it seemed, the land itself. We were killed. I'd say 90% of our casualties came in that area from landmines, and you can't shoot back at a landmine. You can't kill it. There was an absence of targets. There was a kind of aimlessness in the most, specific sense, not just a political sense, but an aimlessness and no targets, nothing to aim at. And as a consequence, a kind of frustration grew within my own unit a kind of, and a kind of anger directed at Vietnam itself or Quang Ngai, the province, at the land. And so I know something of the sources of what happened on that day in March of 1968. At the same time, that isn't to justify what happened. You know, we can talk about mass murderers and criminals, and we can explain some of their behaviors, yet uh, murder is murder. And what happened at My Lai that day in 1968 was, was murder.
1: Why did you want to go back? About For you, it was about 25 years later when you went back in last February. Why?
0: I'd been called by the New York Times magazine, you know, and asked to go back. And my first response was, no, I didn't want to go. For no particular reason, except um, I, would, I didn't want to travel, and I didn't want to, I had other things to do with my life. But my my girlfriend, who, who our ex-girlfriend, who was 20 years younger, really wanted to go. She wanted to share in my past. She wanted to see the shapes of things. She wanted to learn something about why I'd wake up in the middle of the night screaming at times. And uh, she convinced me to to make the trip, and I'm glad I did. It was uh, this was only what, what, eight months or so ago, but it was an extraordinary revisiting, in the sense that the horrid memories remain; then they'll never go away. But alongside those those terrible pictures, there are now other pictures, the pictures of peace. I remember a rice paddy. 25 years ago, bubbling with machine gun fire, just literally bubbling. And now that same rice paddy lives in my memory in another way. Rice paddy, it's just so gorgeous, and this golden sunlight striking it, and a water buffalo, and a little boy walking across a paddy dike. So side by side, those images of horror have, 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 there are other images now of peace. And, uh, it's nice to have that balance back.
1: What was it like talking to some of the Vietnamese survivors?
0: That was pretty terrible. We we interviewed the, some of the survivors at My Lai. Um, it was pretty much what you'd expect. There, there was a lot of anger, a lot of bitterness, uh, a lot of tears. For two hours, we sat in a little room in the village of My Lai, two women recounting to us the horror of that day uh, women I guess now in their sixties and early one in their one in her late sixties, one in her early seventies w- one of these women had lost nine members of her family, another lost her entire family um, after the interview concluded, we went out for a little walk around the village, and one of these women. Took my girlfriend aside and pulled down her trousers and showed her a bullet scar in her hip, as a way of, I think, saying, you know, for all this talk, I want to show you the reality of it all. This, this is real. There's the scar. This is not. This is not talk. This is a real thing, and there's the scar to prove it. And uh, it, the, the images of that. Revisiting of to Milai are indelible. I'll never forget them. America has a way of, I think, of, of using ellipses now and then—a way of erasing its own its own mistakes and its own sins. And, and Mila is an example of that, where the, our nation has managed somehow to excuse or justify what happened. On that day in 1968, and to excuse and justify similar sorts of behaviors and napalming of villages on a kind of a daily basis, and uh, widespread civilian casualties. Um, what happened in Muai was an aberration in, in, in one sense, that is face-to-face killing of noncombatants. But in another sense, that could have only happened, I think, in the context of a war that had become indiscriminate.
1: Were you surprised by how friendly people were to you when you went back?
0: Very surprised. The uh, by and large, the people of, Viet- of Vietnam are love Americans. So I don't know why, or you know, one would think they would be full of bitterness. But in fact, throughout my my two weeks in Vietnam. I was treated with uh, great great friendliness and love. Uh, kind of, they were happy to. I was the first soldier, for example, to revisit my firebase in Quang Nai Province in 25 years, and the whole town gathered around, and kids pressing up close, and visited a, I was invited to a feast, and uh, what's, a, uh, what's a
1: what's a firebase?
0: The firebase is called LZ Gator. It's a little place for a battalion of about 600 men. a Little hill, and we would. This is a place where we would go back to kind of take showers and sleep now and then. We we used it as a place to to as an embarking place to go out into the bush and do our patrols and our our combat operations.
1: Now, the New York Times magazine story is also it's, it's also about love and about the loss of love. Why was it important to juxtapose that with your trip back to Vietnam?
0: Well, I think the point is is that we think of war ordinarily as a foreign experience, something that takes place elsewhere. And it seemed to me important to make the point that we all live in a... a, You don't have to be in Vietnam to be in Vietnam. We've all been there. If your husband has left you, or if your father has died, if your girlfriend has dumped you, you've been fired from a job, you're suddenly living the kind of ex- experience that I lived in Vietnam. You're living in those slow motion droplets of now. You look at your watch and it's 2 in the morning. And you wait an hour and look again and it's 2 That one That time just slows down. We used to call this war time. And that same kind of experience hit me again this past summer when my love affair my girlfriend you know we parted ways and uh, I suddenly was back on wartime couldn't sleep at night full of terror full of loss full of sorrow regret shame those feelings I felt in Vietnam and i wanted to try to build a bridge between the experience of combat war and the domestic life we all lead
1: i could see why you would want to make those kinds of connections especially for those of us who haven't had to experience mm-hmm. war and give us some approximation of it but can you really i mean in a sense don't you isn't that diluting the the terror and horror of war
0: not at all i mean i never i mean to the contrary, I, I, was never, I never felt worse than the summer, the loss of love. The loss of love is a little bit like death. It's a kind of dying. Um, when you have to give up your hopes and give up your love and realize it's all hopeless. Um, a sense of, of where's God? Where do you find faith? it's in a way more powerful than the experience that i had in vietnam in vietnam my my essential goal was simply to stay alive nothing more duck and keep ducking hope i didn't step on a landmine um and i had a kind of hope that is after the 365 days the ordinary tour was up i'd get to get on a plane and fly home and it would be over There was hope, and this summer that sense of hope wasn't there. It it all seemed, and it still seems, hopeless. Um,
1: you know, when I read the story, I was the magazine story. I was reminded a little bit of. of, uh one of your stories in *The Things They Carried*, a piece called *Love*, where this a character, mm-hmm. the soldier, doesn't get his girl, and the narrator says, "I'd like to write a story about it." And the soldier says, "Why not? Maybe she'll read it and come begging. There's always hope, right?" There's always hope. Did you feel any of that when you were writing your magazine piece?
0: A little, yeah. The magazine piece, in a way, was a way of keeping myself alive uh, physically. You know, I was contemplating swallowing some pills. It was that hopeless. And writing this. Peace over the course of this last summer gave me something to do with myself. Number one, a way to pass the time, was also gave me a chance to sort of objectify it all, to put put it on paper. And when you're putting it on paper, you're you're looking at events and at your own life in in, in a in a somewhat more objective way. You're making sentences, and the sentences, each sentence that is made. Takes a little of the emotion out of yourself and puts it on the page where it is allowed to rest. I, I have a feeling that if it hadn't been for that that uh, those three or four months I spent writing that article, I would have i have been uh, I don't know I might have been not be here right now. Who knows?
1: Tim O'Brien, you've said that in your writing you use Vietnam the same way that John Updike uses suburbia.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> Can you elaborate on that?
0: Well, yeah. My my purpose in writing books is not to to do nonfiction. I'm not writing about bombs and bullets, military maneuvers, rank, all the things we think of as military stuff. My purpose is to, to write about the human heart and the human intellect, to write about the pressures that are put on the heart and on the brain, the same way that... I suppose Updike would say I'm not writing about ranch houses and driveways.
1: and Swimming pools.
0: Swimming pools. I'm writing about the human heart, and I'm using what life gives me. Life has presented me with suburbia and divorce and all the things he's gone through, the same way with Toni Morrison. I don't think she would want to be called a black writer. I think she'd want to be called a writer-writer. But
1: but the way that you tell stories, I mean, the way you try to get at truth, some kind of truth... it has such a almost a, a sort of moral obsessiveness to it. There's a, such a determination that
0: well, I think all good writing has that. If one reads Mark Twain or one reads Morrison or Conrad, there's an there's a desire to use the materials life gives us um, to examine that which is important, and what's important is this human struggle, good against evil. I think.
1: Um, So, war war lays that out in such a dramatic way for you. you
0: Yeah. War war has a way of of presenting characters with incredible choices. Do I keep walking or lie down and quit? Do I go to a war or not go to a war? Do I pull a trigger or not pull a trigger? Do I run or do I stay? Those are big choices and they're made on a daily basis in a war, but similarly in life we're presented with the same kinds of choices. Do I marry her or not? Do I stay married or not? Do I forgive or not? And how do I forgive? Can I forgive? That whatever materials, you know, we run across in our lives, We have to use them as writers, I think, to explore those conflicts or struggles uh, of the human spirit. For me, as a 21-year-old kid, I I I went through a war. It was a long time ago. And yet, it stays with me in terms of choice, in terms of things I care about as a human being now. Um, and I'm going to continue, if I, if I do continue to write, I'm certainly going to, I'm not going to block Vietnam out of my life any more than Conrad would block the ocean out of his life, or Shakespeare would stop using kings, or Morrison stop using the black experience, that a writer ultimately has to draw on what we live.
1: You, but you said that you, you probably wouldn't have become a writer if you hadn't gone to Vietnam.
0: That's probably true. Um... My object. I mean, it wasn't that. My when I graduated from college and was drafted, my goal was to, you know, go to grad school.
1: You had a scholarship to Harvard. I
0: Had a scholarship to Harvard. I planned to study government, go into the foreign service, maybe run for office, maybe become president. (laughs) I don't know. But I was a political sort of animal. I was an intellectual. Um, Vietnam changed my personality in a very radical way. I learned for the first time, I think, that my my behaviors were determined not not just by my brain, but by my heart. Um, I went to Vietnam really for, for a pretty bad reason, because I wanted to be loved. I went to Vietnam because I craved love. I wanted my hometown to love me, and my mom and dad, and my country, my girlfriend. And as I found out in Vietnam, most of my fellow soldiers went for pretty much the same reasons.
1: Given given that you were so opposed to the war, and that it made you at the same time, it it, it, it in a sense made you a writer, or it stimulated you to become a writer, turned you, and, and and that's what your life has been like since and has provided uh, so much um, material or some mm-hmm. you know whatever you want to call that. Do you regret that you went?
0: Oh, very much. I mean, if I could do it over again, I, I would be a citizen of Canada right now. All through basic training and all through advanced infantry training, which I, for me was in Fort Lewis, Washington, only you know two hours from the Canadian border. All I could think about through those months of training was how close Canada was. And I came very close to, uh, to deserting. I must say that 25 years after the war, my primary interest now is storytelling. Um, I believe in the power of stories. Um, it's a hard thing to describe on a radio program when we have to be analytical and we have to sort of examine you know, particular issues. But in the Lake of the Woods, the things they carried, my, my novels, are, are stories. And one hopes that the particularity of a story will make the reader feel Feel. It'll squeeze the heart and squeeze the head and the adenoids and the kidneys, the whole body. Um, so that, so that um, in the way all stories do, Hansel and Gretel, Huckleberry Finn.
1: <laughs> I'd, like, I'd like you to read a, a short piece from your last novel, uh, the, from the book, The Things They Carried. And it's, it's called Good Form.
0: It's time to be blunt. I'm 43 years old, true, and I'm a writer now. And a long time ago, I walked through Quang nai province as a foot soldier. Almost everything else is invented. But it's not a game. It's a form. Right here, now, as I invent myself, I'm thinking of all I want to tell you about why this book is written as it is. For instance, I want to tell you this. Twenty years ago, I watched a man die on a trail near the village of Mikei. I did not kill him. But I was present, and my presence was guilt enough. I remember his face, which was not a pretty face, because his jaw was in his throat. And I remember feeling the burden of responsibility and grief. I blame myself, and rightly so, because I was present. But listen, even that story is made up. I want you to feel what I felt. I want you to know why story truth is truer sometimes than happening truth. Here's the happening truth. I was once a soldier. There were many bodies, real bodies with real faces. But I was young then, and I was afraid to look. And now, 20 years later, I'm left with faceless responsibility and faceless grief. Here is the story truth. He was a slim, dead, almost dainty young man of about 20. He lay in the center of a red clay trail near the village of Mique. His jaw was in his throat. His one eye was shut. The other eye was a star-shaped hole. I killed him. What stories can do, I guess, is make things present. I can look at things I never looked at. I can attach faces to grief and love and pity and God, I can be brave. I can make myself feel again. Daddy, tell the truth, my daughter Kathleen can say. Did you ever kill anybody? And I can honestly say, of course not. Or or I can say, honestly, yes.
1: Tim O'Brien reading from his last book of uh, linked stories, The Things They Carried. And I should add that... um with respect to story truth and happening truth, that the story you read is just a, is, is a fiction. You have no daughter, Kathleen.
0: That's right. I mean, that's one of the joys of writing fiction is that you can... I needed a child in that book, someone who can ask the obvious questions that adults just won't ask. Did you kill anyone? The question that sort of preys on the minds of anyone who faces someone who's been in a war. Did you? And a child would ask that sort of question, so I needed a I needed a character. And I, so I gave myself a daughter.
1: But why did you want to have a character named Tim from Minnesota in, in the things they carried, even though you don't, you don't want us to think that he's you? Uh,
0: I mean, these are complicated issues of, you know, the, these, are, these are the things that 25 years after the war make me a writer. I wanted to do a book that had the form of a memoir, that read like a memoir, where every word felt true. This really happened. And then to make it all up um writers set challenges for themselves and in this case I wanted the challenge was to write a book where the reader would feel that he or she was reading an autobiography a kind of confessional retrospective on the war and yet underneath it all there it's a fiction it's a made up story well there's a there's a reason for this and the reason is is that sometimes oftentimes I think you have to lie to tell the truth. You have to invent to tell the truth. Um, for example, I, uh, there's a piece in the, in the Things They Carried called On the Rainy River about a character who goes to the Canadian border, his name is Tim, and debates whether he should cross the Rainy River into Canada. Well, I never did that. I spent the summer of 1968, the summer I was drafted, playing golf and worrying about being drafted well, that's a crummy story. It doesn't make you feel what I felt, whereas on the Rainy River, even though it's made up, in fact, because it's made up, allows you to participate in a, in a drama that's much closer to the emotional truth of what was happening inside me that summer. Hi, I'm Caitlin Prest, and I am here in your ear to tell you about a very incredible new show called Asking For It. Asking For It is a darkly comedic series that follows a queer femme singer whose history of violence finds her no matter how many times she runs away. It has an original soundtrack, and it'll make you laugh, cry, and feel a
1: little bit less alone. Asking For It. Subscribe now. There's some sketchy references in your fiction to a, a childhood in Minnesota, but can you tell me what it was really like? What was it like for you, not not for your fictional alter egos?
0: Sure. I grew up in a little town called Worthington, Minnesota, population 10,000. Its claim to fame was, it, it called itself Turkey Capital of the World. Turkey? Turkey. Oh, Turkey. Turkey and <laughs> Gobble Gobble. Lots of turkey farms <laughs> and so on. Uh, my memories of my hometown have to do with, you know... Um, Little Carnegie Library and Little League Baseball, a very quiet, conservative town. It was a town that uh it was a town that sent me to the war uh, I can't say i'm I'm entirely happy with the place, and the place isn't entirely happy with me. Uh, the citizens of Worthington, Minnesota by and large didn't know the first thing about the politics of Vietnam. They couldn't tell you who Bao Dai was from the Man on the Moon. They didn't know the first thing about French colonialism. And yet it was a town pretty much, you know, committed to America right or wrong, as small town America generally is, sending their sons off to fight a war that they knew nothing about. <clears throat> and I, uh, I harbor to this day a resentment a bitterness toward that town, and towns like it.
1: I can hear it in your voice.
0: That's not to say there aren't virtues in these places, there there, there are, but at the same same time, uh, the bitterness is there, and it's a bitterness that has to do with ignorance, it has a bitterness to do with a kind of willful ignorance a desire not to know anything about the world, a desire not to know about the uh, the politi- international politics, a kind of single-minded, bellicose, self-congratulatory, belligerent, let's go get the commies attitude. Uh, and To this day, I'm afraid that that attitude infects a great deal of middle America and southern America and western America. Witness what happened, in, with the war in Iraq, I mean, we came out of that war with a real self-congratulatory, clapping ourselves on the back sense of, "Well, America's back in the saddle again; we're the quickest gun in the West." Which, as a Vietnam veteran and as a citizen, you know, continues to disturb me. The uh, and,
1: and and the historical amnesia. I think some, one of the things that in, in the Lake of the Woods, your new novel, really tries to address is. Uh, the American unwillingness to, well, as you say, there, there's evil has no place in our national mythology, the unwillingness to make connections between, as you do, between Vietnam and, and 19th century treatment of American Indians.
0: Exactly. I think, I mean, I'm not sure if this is particular to America. I think a lot of nations probably do this. Maybe it's part of the human spirit, the human nature. But we do, I think, tend to try to erase flaw and erase evil and erase sin, as a, as a, certainly the nation I think has done that America has a lot of virtues i mean it's there are a lot of nice things to be said about that country, but at the same time full consciousness requires a sense of of, of its, uh, the capability of sin and the and the, that has to be recognized
1: but the main character in your new novel in the Lake of the woods is a man who does try to who needs to forget his own personal history and his own Experience of evil. More, it's less black and white than the way you put mm-hmm. it to me now. Because he's he, you explore in this novel is in a way how inexplicable evil is. That at one point uh, he talks about that he he does not consider himself an evil man, and and I get the sense that you don't either. I mean, there, you you, there's, there's it's much more nuanced than.
0: I think what I'm trying to do in, in the Lake of the Woods is to is to write about the consequences of the commission of evil. Uh, I'm not sure that any of us are fully virtuous or fully evil, we're mixtures of ca- of possibility. And my character John Wade was a participant in the Lai massacre. Uh, the question then becomes what happens afterward? What do you do with yourself after you've committed evil? Um, do you go on? So how? Do you hide it from yourself or from others? Um, Do you atone? And how can you atone? There is a penalty, though, to be paid for secrecy, a penalty to be used for erasing erasing history, erasing evil from our lives. The penalty comes crashing down on him, yeah his life is wrecked when the secret comes out his marriage is, is destroyed and comes collapsing down on him and uh, the, it's it's that sense of what secrecy and what deceit can do to the human human relationships that i think is at the heart of the novel at the same time i look at the book partly as a love story you know that it's this he loves his wife and at the same time is controlling her and manipulating her in a way that's bad, and the consequences of control and manipulation are part of the book too
1: one one way that manipulation occurs here is is through magic magic is is important in this mm-hmm. novel and i and i understand it, that as a kid it was important for you, that you saw it as a way of trying to manipulate your, your world.
0: Yeah, I mean, I grew up pretty much like my main character, John Wade. My dad was, a, was an alcoholic, I guess like all our fathers were, I'm discovering as I go on this <laughs> tour. He teased me relentlessly. Mine was
1: not. Dead.
0: But he was a relentless sort of teaser. It was hard to please him, and uh, I was sort of a chubby, lonely you know, kid. And I found magic as a hobby, as a way of, on the one hand, of controlling the world a little bit, and also a way of earning applause in junior high school and from my mom and dad when I do little tricks. And I drew on that uh, my own hobby and my own past, to develop the character of John Wade. And as it goes on in life, He, unlike me, he remains a magician or a sorcerer uh, in college when he falls in love with Kathy, the heroine of this novel he continues doing little tricks he spies on her through college just to learn about a little bit about her but also to see how she's using her time to make sure she really loves him um at one point she says you know it's weird how well you know me and he says well that's love for you when in fact He's been tailing her across campus and watching her buy his Christmas present and watching her buy her you know her first birth control pills and so on and throughout their marriage later on he's doing little tricks trying to manipulate her love and keep it under control and make sure that he's he's uh, got that marriage under control and he does it to such an extent that he's finally hiding the most fundamental things from her.
1: Tim O'Brien, I understand that you want to stop writing fiction for the foreseeable future why why was this book in the Lake of the woods why was it so draining for you?
0: well it was draining because I took some risks um, it was it's, it's hard to write a I mean this novel is a novel is going to frustrate a lot of people you get to the end and no solutions uh, that was risky, and I had to take some, you know, it took a long time to decide to do it the way it ought to be done. Beyond that, the issues of deceit and secrecy, the things we were talking about earlier, what, a, what they do to great love, you know, those, those issues come from my own life. Um, they were hard to write about. The end of the book, my main character, John Wade, his wife is gone. He doesn't know, you know, and he nor no one else knows what happened. He goes sailing off into the Northwoods, heading for Canada uh, in the Lake of the woods. And I feel a bit like John Wade, that uh, the secure foundations of my life or what I thought were secure are gone, and they're gone forever, and I feel like I'm sailing out into a void that when this book tour is over, I don't have any desire to uh, to uh, go right back to the computer for another six years. I want to go to an island somewhere and bask in the sunlight.
1: But then, but that sounds like the, the, if I may say, the the normal book tour fatigue syndrome or yeah. something, whatever you want to call that. But even before that, you were saying that you just
0: sure. I mean, that's not you, t- you've
1: had it with fiction. I mean, what 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 personal price do you? I mean, the, the book has certainly done well, so in a sense, your risks risks are being yeah, rewarded. But what personal price have you paid for writing fiction? I mean, what? What does it?
0: It's a, it's a difficult thing to explain, but it has to do with living through writing, and I want to live now through living. That for 20 years of my life, my life has been has been consumed nine hours a day, every day of the week, Christmas, my birthday, Halloween, other per- people's birthdays, with writing. Well, I'm tired of it, and I feel I've given the world four pretty good books, and there's no law that's natural or man-made that says I have to do any more. I've done, I think I've given the world some nice presents, and that's what I set out to do, is to leave a few artifacts behind that are well-made and that will entertain. and that's. Enough for now. If I, if, if at some point I do feel like writing again, I'm not going to apologize. I'll just do it. But I, I really feel that it's time for me to to um, find myself a little bit, to uh, find a place to live, stop smoking. A lot of personal goals I have for myself. I've recently, you know, gotten divorced, and I have to, f- you know, sort of figure out what to what to do with myself, and in terms of just Living conditions; And those things are important, and I think that probably for the next couple of years at least, I'll be paying attention to those matters.
1: We start off talking about the, the the piece that you wrote for the New York Times Magazine about going back to Mly, and in it, you talk about there's a there's a a moment when you're trying to find a particular place, and it's really hard to find, and yeah. and, and you say that uh, um, you're going to use one part of you that's. All heart, another part of you that's more—that's all mind. You say one eye on the compass, one eye on some inner rosary. Mm-hmm. Is that the kind of balance you you want to retrieve?
0: It is, yeah. I mean, in that case, I was looking for a particular rice paddy—the paddy I described earlier in this interview—that I remembered bubbling with machine gun fire, and now remember is very peaceful. And as I walked this terrain, trying to find that paddy, which was extremely difficult. I had a, a compass in my hand and a map, and, and I, in my heart I was just hoping that through some sort of mystical connection with the land's contours and proportions, I would find my way th- to that, pa- that particular spot on the earth. And I hope the same sort of principle can operate in my life now, that you know, I, I'm very, very proud of In the Lake of the Woods. I mean, it's a fine book, and I'm glad that it succeeded. At the same time, what's more important to me now is to have a fine life, and a life that succeeds.
1: In the Lake of the Woods, is there any sense in which that kind of exercise took care of the Vietnam demons for you?
0: In a way, yes. Uh, it, 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 in another way no. It, I had kept a lot of secrets the way John Way did about my own past, and things I'll never tell. Things I don't want to tell, things I don't even need telling. They're they're my they're my guilts. Nothing on the scale that John Wade went through. You know, I didn't commit mass murder. I didn't shoot babies and so on. My my guilts are essentially have to do with passivity, not saying, not acting, not telling the, somebody to stop doing things. Nonetheless. Uh, We live in a culture that tends to forgive a little too quickly, including to forgive ourselves, all this sort of healing stuff, and self-help, and go on. I think it's very important sometimes for wounds not to heal, to keep picking at the scabs, to remind ourselves of the bad things we've done, and not to forget them quite so easily. Um, And part of the book is... You know, it has to do with that. I'm trying picking at that meli scab, and I want to. I want the horror of it all to be to be between covers. I also want the uh, the, the consequences of to the people who participated in the massacre. To con, you know, I want that to live on too. And I hope the book does some of that.
1: It's really a pleasure to get to see you. Thank, Thank you very you. much. Tim O'Brien in Toronto in 1994. If you or someone you know is struggling, you can contact Talk Suicide Canada toll-free at 1-833-456-4566 or go to talksuicide.ca for resources in your province. While Tim O'Brien was here, he read from his novel, In the Lake of the Woods, at the University of Toronto. It's from a chapter called The Nature of Love, and he starts by recalling the time when John Wade courted his future wife, Kathy.
0: In college, John and Kathy used to go dancing over at the bottle top on Hennepin Avenue. They'd hold each other tight, even to the fast songs. And they'd dance until they couldn't dance anymore. And then they'd sit in one of the dark booths and play a game called Dare You. The rules were haphazard. I dare you, Kathy might say, to take off my pantyhose. And John would contemplate the mechanics, the various angles and resistances. And then he'd nod and slide a hand under the table. It was a way of learning about each other a way of discovering the possibilities between them. One night, he dared her to steal a bottle of scotch from behind the bar. No sweat at all, Kathy said. It's way too easy. And she straightened her skirt and got up and said a few words to the bartender, who went into a back room. Then she strolled behind the bar and stood studying the selections for what seemed a long, long time. Finally, she made a so-what motion with her shoulders. She tucked a bottle under her jacket, returned to the booth, smiled at John, dared him to order two glasses. He was crazy with love. He pulled off one of her white tennis shoes. With a ballpoint pen, he wrote on the instep, John plus Kath. He drew a heart around these words, tied the shoe to her foot, Kathy laughed at his corniness Girl of my dreams, he said Let's get married First, though, there was Vietnam where John Wade killed people and where he composed long letters full of observations about the nature of their love He did not tell her about the killing He told her how lonely he was and how he wanted more than anything to sleep with his hand on the bone of her hip He said he was lost without her He said she was his compass, his sun, his stars. He compared their love to a pair of snakes he'd seen along a trail near Pinkville, each snake eating the other's tail, a bizarre circle of appetites that brought the heads closer and closer until one of the men in Charlie Company used a machete to end it. That's how our love feels, John wrote, like we're swallowing each other up, except in a good way a perfect number one yum-yum way. And I can't wait to get home and see what would have happened if those two dumbass snakes finally ate each other's heads. Think about it. The mathematics get weird. In other letters, he wrote about the great beauty of the country, the paddies and mountains. He told her about villages that vanished right before his eyes. He told her about his new nickname. The guys call me Sorcerer, he wrote, and I sort of like it gives me this zingy, charged-up feeling, this special power or something, like I'm in control of things. Anyhow, it's not so bad over here, at least for now. And I love you, Kath. Just like those two weirdo snakes. One plus one equals zero. When he was young, nine or ten, John Wade would lie in bed with his magic catalogs drawing up lists of the tricks he wanted floating glass balls, exploding balloons with flowers inside he'd write down the prices in a little notebook crossing out items he couldn't afford and then on Saturday mornings he'd take the bus across town to Kara's Studio of Magic in downtown St. Paul all alone, a 40 minute ride the ride home was always dreary When he walked into the kitchen, his father would look up and say, Little Merlin. And his mother would frown and put a sandwich on the table and then busy herself at the stove. The whole atmosphere would tense up. His father would stare out the window for a time and then say, So what's new in magic land? Big tricks up your sleeve? And John would say, Sure, not really. Those gophers, he'd say, basketball fever, right? You and me, pal, we'll catch a game tomorrow. You and me, right? Maybe, John would say. Just maybe? I got things to do. Well, sure. Anything you want, his father would say. Maybe he's fine. Maybe he's good enough for me. Thanks.
1: Tim O'Brien in Toronto in 1994, reading from his novel In the Lake of the Woods. Time magazine named it the best book of the year. In the Lake of the Woods, along with his earlier classic, The Things They Carried, and a more recent nonfiction title, Dad's Maybe Book, are available in paperback from HarperCollins. His new novel is called America Fantastica. Today's show was produced by Larry Scanlon. Katie Swales is also producer. Melissa Gismondi is associate producer. Technical operations by Emily Caravasio. The senior producer of Writers & Company is Sandra Rabinovich. I'm Eleanor Wachtel. Next week, German-American writer and artist Nora Krug. Her graphic memoir, Belonging, explores the history of her family as well as of her homeland. Her new book is a visual diary of Russia's war on Ukraine. That's next week. I hope you'll join me.